Yeah, I particularly appreciate the the commitment and patience that carry people through the second day of a retreat, because uh, it can often be the day when the patterns of of sleepiness and fatigue and restlessness really hit. You, know. uh, you may possibly have noticed that today, and in my experience, it's very easy to believe the perceptions of time that are born of those kind of mental states, you know. Four and a half more days of this, or (laughs) three months more of this, or one more day of it, whatever, you know, you're on. And uh, very helpful around those to remember the Buddha's comparison of perception to a mirage, you know, and, and particularly perceptions of time, which are so kind of dependent on the mental state from which they arrive, arise in the moment. Do, do you sense that? You know? The, when, the, when the mood is kind of low or sleepy or restless, it's, oh, time feels like a kind of desert of vast eternity. And then... You know, in the moments of lightness or pleasantness, oh, I want to be on retreat forever, you know. So just to have that kind of deep, <coughs> as the Buddha encouraged, deep skepticism about the fabricated nature of perceptions of time can be helpful on day two. <laughs> <clears throat> and you know, as, as we practice this, this collecting and cohering and calming, and, and understanding of the energies of the body, heart, mind. As I was saying this morning, it can also be really helpful to remember and practice a sense of ground. Grounding. You know, it seems that this is how the energy and nervous systems of our bodies work best when they have a sense of ground. You know. uh, and when we really take time to ground, to cultivate that, that contact with the earth, I, I'm always <clears throat> kind of struck and inspired by the story of Siddhartha on the night of his awakening. So the story is told in the, the armies of Mara, you know, Sleepiness, restlessness, all the armies that we can experience on day two of a retreat, you know. What does he do? He touches the earth. That's what that hand gesture is is behind here and that Christina was pointing out the other day. It's that touching the earth and just the sanity and support of touching the earth. Cultivating, touching the earth, you know. In, in a culture that, as I was saying, sends us up and out. You know. Almost like, you know, the lightning conductor principle. You know, we, we, our bodies and our hearts store all this charge, don't they, from daily life, just from, as, as Hamlet put it, the, you know, the, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is air too. And we can see how the kind of soft tissue of the body 
stores, you know, all the busyness and agitation and the, the natural and the unnatural shocks that life brings to all of us. And just that knowing how to discharge that into ground, how to practice the lightning conductor principle, you know, this is important knowing. And, and some of you who work as mindfulness teachers and therapists know how important it is in those roles to have our earth fuse plugged in, you know, so that we know how to kind of let the charge pass through and not just store it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, grounding is very practical. It's about sensing feet, seats, hands. The, the earth element in the body, as the Buddha invites in the Satipatthana Sutta, he uses the, the, the lens, one of the many lenses he uses, one of the, the six lenses he uses for mindfulness of the body is the elements. So earth and water and fire and air. And just to value the earth element in the body, its weight, its fullness, its substance, that kind of absorbent quality of earth, the kind of density of, of bones <laughs> that are not so pulled around as the soft tissue is. And as we know, that, that there's in any kind of mindfulness class or in any retreat, there's always a, a kind of portion of the group for whom the breath isn't the most helpful primary anchor. Yeah. or there are times in our lives or certain mental states where the breath is too subtle or too charged and that, say, the hands can be such a blessing you know? the soles of the feet you know, the soles of your feet are probably not restless you know, your, your sit bones are probably not bothered about that situation at work Mm-hmm. the hands are not caught up in that argument mm-hmm. this is useful to know because other parts of the body really are you know? so you know there's, there's, a, there's a, yeah, a, a kind of you know this phrase that Christina quoted this morning mm-hmm. about calming the formations just to know those parts of the body and our experience that are outside the formations, outside the places of activation. This is such important and kind of can be life-giving knowing in our lives and in our times that we're living through. So really, just to kind of encourage you midst the, the waves of what comes on a retreat, particularly on day two, you know, just to kind of keep knowing, letting your body know and recognize where ground is. And sensing also how that opens, really grounding, opens us into kind of relationship with life. In, in Zen, it's kind of a reflecting with one of the groups this morning in Zen, they say, solid is the mountain, open is the ocean. And it's 
kind of the solidity of the mountain that supports oh openness. People were noticing earlier how even just the sense of the heart opens when there's more sense of ground. Or the sense of connection with nature. As we re-enter the kind of life of the body more fully, and saying, you know, Ajahn Suchito calls it this kind of rewilding of the body, heart, mind. And sensing our deep connection and interdependence that when, when, when I'm ungrounded and kind of frantic, I forget. So really enjoying how, how this kind of grounding supports reconnection, supports a kind of opening, and supports enjoying. And really just want to kind of give another shout out for the practice of enjoyment. Christina alluded to this last night, spoke about it in her, her lovely talk. You know, but just to recognize how important the practice of enjoyment is in this path. The, the Buddha said a skilled practitioner cultivates a sense of enjoyment. So that's enjoyment not just as a fruit of the practice, but as a conscious cultivation this very important kind of principle that um, really is how the Buddha describes practice. Bhavana, meaning bringing into being. Kind of, it's a kind of horticultural image where, where what we're doing is we're cultivating certain qualities of the body, heart, mind, seeking to bring them into being on the principle that whatever we cultivate, we get better at, as Christina said yesterday. Or as the Buddha puts it, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the heart-mind. We're shaped by what we practice. And, well, why not, if that's the case, why not practice enjoyment? <laughs> you know? And really, a key part of the art of retreat is to cultivate the enjoyment of what's here. The conscious, <clears throat> you know, re-acquainting um, ourselves with that which has possibly you know, or probably become dulled by habit and busyness, you know. Just the, just again, the beauty of nature. The freshness of, of taking a step. You know, take, take that hand says, the miracle isn't to walk on water, the miracle is to walk on the earth. I'll, I'll miss that when I can't do it any longer, you know? And, and really to kind of, again, enjoy and appreciate that blessing of being able to walk well enough, you know? Being able to taste food and enjoy that. Feeling the sense of space and the lack of pressure 
I know we put ourselves under pressure on retreat, but you know, nobody else is doing it, <laughs> you know, which is a change and, and a blessing, you know, that I can appreciate and enjoy. The sense of time and space kind of opening up. Really, to make that an integral part of the practice, an integral part of the practice, something that we're cultivating kind of you know throughout the day you know, off the cushion certainly you know stopping and looking at the view listening to the silence and the rooks that are the backing vocals of all dharma talks at Gaia House <laughs> but also right in the practice so or right in the kind of formal aspects of the practice. So easily we um, bring a, a kind of neutral attention to the breathing, to the breath. But what is it to follow the Buddha's encouragement to bring an appreciative awareness to the breathing? To appreciate the freshness of the in-breath, the release of the out-breath the rest of the pause. This is how this collectedness that Christina spoke about, it's actually how it deepens through cultivating a gentle cultivation of and appreciation of the pleasantness of hands, breath, body. Really to kind of receive that kind of fully kind of host the, the subtle pleasantness of you know whatever sensations you're finding steadying or anchoring or nourishing or resourcing you know? this is this is you know the Buddha said this kind of pleasure is to be cultivated it shouldn't be feared it's to be cultivated because we can see how appreciation is different from craving. Craving is, is wanting something that's not here. You know? Wanting to get this, that. You know? Wanting to get calm. Wanting to get to lunch. Wanting to get you know, to the end of the retreat. Or wanting to whatever it is. You know? and appreciation... Appro- it kind of receives more fully what's already here. <laughs> it's this kind of receptivity that we've been cultivating in the, in the Qigong practice. Satellite dish. Mindfulness is satellite dish. It just kind of fully welcomes and receives the pleasantness of breath. We can sense that you know, craving activates Appreciation regulates. You know, it, it kind of restores the nervous system to balance, to greater ease, to kind of steadiness. And that it can also, appreciation can coexist with discomfort. You know, we, we, some you know, we know that attention goes to what's uncomfortable often, doesn't it? Yeah? 
It's kind of this negative attention bias that you probably tell people about in your mindfulness classes. And certainly we know that when it does that, it can end up amplifying and ruminating and kind of adding all kinds of optional discomfort to the unavoidable difficulties of life. And yes, we, we teach about turning towards the difficult, but a key part of contemplative practice is developing the capacity at times not to give attention to the difficult, especially when there's a sense of overwhelm or not sufficient resource. Because it's so easy. Overwhelm never helps, does it? You know? And so what is it, even when the body's feeling a bit kind of creaky and cranky after two days of sitting, you know, what is it to, to make much of that which is pleasant? Really to kind of amplify that, really to enjoy that. To kind of develop our capacity to kind of relativize the unpleasant within a larger landscape, a larger kind of uh, sense of awareness that includes feet, that includes seat, that includes silence, includes rooks, includes breath. Because there's a deep insight here, which is that pain, discomfort, doesn't have an objective or fixed intensity or size within consciousness. Or at least that's something just to try that out as a hypothesis. You know? that, that pain, whether physical or emotional, depends so much on the climate of mind and on what we're cultivating in the midst of them. And so maybe particularly on these early days of the retreat, just to have that sense of cultivating the lovely, cultivating enjoyment, really building a sense of resource, capacity, very supportive, and, and can really change our relationship with what is difficult in the practice and in life. So... A kind of discernment, really. A discernment that's uh, so important in this practice as we uh, investigate what's the most helpful way to practice in this moment. And this is a discernment that the Buddha speaks about as as a quality of clear knowing. And... In this, this sutta and throughout the sutta, the, the Buddha so often that we find that the word for mindfulness, sati, linked or compounded with the word for clear knowing, sampajana is the, is the Pali for it, which really means kind of really to know, thoroughly to know. And again, Christina spoke about this a, a bit yesterday and We've used this word know quite a lot already and that's no coincidence because it's actually the most common word in the Satipatthana Sutta is this word to know, to know our experience. To know at, at a kind of basic level the posture, 
you know. one, one of the teachers who, from Asia who taught a lot of Western Dharma teachers said to sit and to know that you're sitting opens you to receive the whole of the Dharma so to sit and really know oh this is sitting or standing or walking that kind of basic knowing to know, to act to, to, to do the various activities of the day knowing that we're doing it what moments in the days on retreat do you, do you find that autopilot or kind of unconsciousness takes over it's a really interesting question to look at. Is it, is it kind of around food, which is often what happens? Or is it kind of in the bathroom when you've locked the door? Nobody, oh, off duty. Kind of <laughs> in the bedroom, you know, the yogi job. Just, just to be interested, okay? Like Christina, not as it come, some kind of life sentence. I've got to have this grim kind of attitude to it, but can I, whatever I'm doing here, can I practice a, a, a continuity of awareness? The Buddha is very candid in the sutta. He says, you know, carrying your bowl, carrying your clothes, urinating and defecating, act clearly knowing. He says. So, you know, really to, to, to have that sense of doing what we're doing and knowing that we're doing it. As a gift to ourselves, as a, you know, a, in really in support of waking up, it's very, very helpful for deepening our practice to have this sense of a more seamless knowing during the day that is helped by, as we've said, the moments of pausing and asking, okay, I know what I'm doing, but what's the mental state here? What's happening internally? So before you get up at the end of a sitting to go to walking, just to notice, okay, what's happening? Oh, there's kind of peacefulness, or there's sleepiness, or there's boredom. Or there's, you know, just to, to clearly know, to, to, to recognize, ah, this is present. To, to know what one is practicing is another aspect of this Sampajana. So to have that sense of, okay, what's the intention in this sitting? It's, it's so easy, even on retreat, isn't it, to sit down with a kind of soup of intentions, with kind of trying a little bit of that, or trying a little bit of that, that doesn't work, I'm going to try something else, you know. Or just to have a kind of fogginess around intention. But this is such a, a preciously supportive environment for practicing a, a clarity of intention. Where there's a sense of, okay, I'm practicing right now. What I'm really practicing is grounding. So I know that's what I'm going to come back to, you know, when the mind wanders. Or now I'm really practicing with the breath in the abdomen, you know, or the whole breath. Always remembering that, that the intention needs, if it's going to be mindfulness, not just to include an object, but also an attitude. Because mindfulness is this attention with attitude. Attitude. Yeah? So this sense of, okay, 
friendliness, appreciation, kindness. To let that be part of what one is you know, clearly practicing you know, in a walking, in a sitting. And the tradition suggests that this sampajana really is, 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 is partly about a developing discernment about what is helpful to practice in this particular kind of mental state. And this takes us kind of into the domain also of what uh, sometimes known as the hindrances, which we've referred to kind of in passing, but we thought it might be helpful just to kind of name this actually very helpful list, which um, is, I often think perhaps we should talk about a name on eight-week courses because it's, it's actually such a compassionate list that the Buddha gives of these five mental states that you know, show up in combinations to obscure, to veil. That's what the Pali word means, to veil a sense of clarity. So the, the wanting mind, the sense, kind of craving for sense pleasures, as the text puts it. That's the first of these. The second, which is aversion, not wanting, and all the many different flavors that that comes in. You know, boredom, irritation, frustration, shame, regret, fear, anger. It's a whole repertoire that we can have around ill will. The the third, which is, as we were saying at the start, the kind of dullness, sleepiness, heaviness, kind of fogginess. The fourth, which is restlessness and worry, agitation, kind of antsiness. And the fifth, which is doubt, which can distinguish sometimes between self-doubt, which is, oh, can't do it. To, you know, I'm not up to it. I've been trying to meditate all these years. I'm even teaching this, and I can't even find a breath. You know, And the way in which... You know, self-doubt often comes up when the other hindrances are feeling a bit overwhelming. And of course it, it can also manifest as path doubt, which is, oh God, this is a waste of time. You know, why am I doing this? You know, should have done the Zumba course this week instead. You know? <laughs> and, and just to feel how this kind of disconnects us, doubt is, is kind of disconnects us from the practice. So helpful to have these listed and named, you know, because there's a sense of oh, it's not just me. These were listed two thousand five hundred years ago, you know, and we see these are as kind of the perennial patterns that that you know always come in combination. Very, you know, I think, I'm not sure that they ever come on their own generally. Well, you could try that out, see if you can find a pure hindrance. You know? But they very often come in combinations. And of course, they don't just visit us on the meditation cushion. These are the factors of mind that obstruct our relationships, that kind of obstruct our work, that obstruct our commitments of all kinds, trying to learn anything, you know that are kind of <coughs> integral part and a helpful lens for ways of working with mental health difficulties that we can find our way into. So really, you know, 
and this is not they're not also they're not just a beginner's practice just to make this clear <laughs> some of these hindrances in the Buddhist the Buddha's map last right until the final stage of awakening so we may have time to get used to well, to get to know how they work, this is another aspect of this sampajana, is, is getting to know how they work. And, and in the sutta, the Buddha is very clear. He kind of gives these kind of... Well, it's a question that the Buddha often asks, which is, how does this work? It's the wisdom question. The compassion question tends to be, what does this need? But how does this work can sometimes illuminate what it needs. And to get to investigate that, the Buddha puts it very clearly in the sutta. He says, knowing if there's aversion around, knowing if there's not aversion around, knowing how aversion can arise and how it can be removed and how it can be prevented. So I get to know the kind of mechanics of it. And some of, you, some of you may be familiar with the acronym RAIN um, as a way of working with mental states of all kinds. Um, recognize, allow, investigate, non-identification. I, I tend to prefer the acronym GRAIN, which is the kind of whole food version, which has grounding as the first one, because it's very easy to get lost in mental states, you know. So just that kind of sense of, okay, this is a way of getting to know, really to recognize what hindrance is present, to name it. Oh, this is doubt. Can help me not to believe it so much when I'm locked into the perceptions of time on day two of the retreat and the mind is kind of foggy and restless, you know. It helps us not to be taken for a ride, just to recognize, to name it. Oh, this, this is sadness, or this is anxiety. You know? The sense of allowing, which uh, you know, is, is so important not to kind of brace against these hindrances, these, these obscuring factors. Allowing the moment to be as it seems. Sometimes that allowing is actually just a willingness to tolerate. You know, I'm, willingness to, I'm willing to tolerate this sleepiness that feels really unpleasant. You know? We're willing to tolerate this sadness that's here right now, or this irritation that's here. Willing to breathe with it rather than brace against it. Willing to kind of soften the body in the face of the agitation rather than tighten up. This is all part of allowing and befriending. And then really to investigate with kindness the I, which, which is kind of the how does this work? What intensifies the anxiety? Or what intensifies the regret? Or what intensifies the frustration? And what de-intensifies it? It's a very helpful question to ask of kind of difficult mental state. What, how do I turn the dial towards intensity? How do I, and that may give me clues as to how to turn the dial in the opposite direction. What's outside it? That's the, the piece about the grounding. You know? 
what helps? What does this need? You know, the compassion question, the session seven of NBCT, which is how can I best take care of myself in the midst of this? Very important part of getting to know how to be with and how, you know, depression or fear works. How can I best take care of myself in the midst of this? Martin Bachelor asks the question, hmm, I wonder how long this will last? Which can be a very good question to ask a difficult mental state because it highlights its changeability, doesn't it? It's kind of impermanent. Sometimes we discover in the middle of it feels like a, you know, a morning of low mood. Oh, is a moment that is no low mood. I feel quite okay. You know, that these states have holes in them. Is there a wise action that this is needing in response? Maybe it's needing some movement, some stretching, some kind of walking more more quickly. You know, on the walking path or round the house. What's the healthy energy in this? Could be a useful question. And, and the end, the non-identification that sees that these states are born of conditions rather than being a self. Kind of, we'll say some more about this later in the week, but it's one of the perspectives, one of the lenses that the Buddha is, is inviting us. You know, again and again in this sutta, the Buddha invites us to notice change, as he puts it, notice arising and passing in the body and the mind. Things coming and going. I wonder how long this will last, you know. Noticing that things have holes in. But also to notice our oh, body as body. Or pain as pain rather than as me or mine. You know? Moods as moods, mind as mind, as the Buddha puts it, rather than me or mine. Can, can we sense that crucial shift? You know, because the body tends to be soaked in a sense of meanness and minus, doesn't it? Yeah. And the Buddha's really inviting practice body as body, body bodying, you know, rather than it being, you know, me, <laughs> moi. You know. Jack Cornfield always quotes Miss Piggy in that way. (laughs) And just to feel that kind of freeing of of the disidentification from experience. This is all part of the clear knowing. The sense that that mindfulness on its own is, is not enough in this path. That the sutta really invites... Both, both mindful awareness and understanding the significance of what we're seeing in certain important ways. And we'll say more about this as the retreat unfolds, but these lenses of impermanence, change, and not-self, non-identification, very kind of key orientations for freeing up the heart-mind that otherwise clings and grasps and pushes away for cultivating a kind of equanimity. And that equanimity is integral to this mindfulness, this, this 
cultivation of, of a mindfulness that is not just attention, but is with attitude. And the attitudes that are particularly invited around these qualities of kindness, appreciation, compassion, and equanimity. And again, we'll say more about these as the retreat unfolds. But they, one could say, well, these are perhaps the kind of active ingredient in the mindfulness. The befriending. And the balancing. As well as, as being protective. You know, the, this, this mindfulness that, that actually we can sense okay, the, the attention could go down that pathway. The Buddha compares it to being like a cow herd, looking after cattle, saying, oh, the cows could go into that field, but actually that's not a very good field for them to go into. They, they might eat all the crops, so I'm going to send them somewhere else. You know? So I can feel the attention could go into the anxious thoughts, and I'm actually going to practice feet, seat, hands. Feet, seat, hands. Steer the kind of cattle of the attention to a different field. Protective. Or, as I was saying, filling the body like filling a water jug with awareness. Protective. So this mindfulness, this is all part of the kind of compassionate responsiveness, kind responsiveness kind of balancing quality of mindfulness that senses what this needs and what does it need in order to support a sense of, of balance and kind of standing in the midst of experience without being pulled. But, but also this sense that mindfulness cares. The sense that, that if it's not kind, if it's not friendly, it's not mindfulness. So what is it really on these days, these, these precious days on retreat, to, as, as the, the Buddha's sutta on kindness puts it, really to, to protect and nurture our heart's capacity for tenderness and kindness and compassion. To this mind-body and to the mind-bodies that we're sharing this space with. human and more than human or non-human however you want to describe other forms of life you know. really to make kindness you know, how we move around the centre with each other as well as how I hold this body and heart how I hold this mood how I hold this difficult thought pattern so Mm. reflected a bit on, on grounding and enjoying cultivating enjoyment the, cultivating the discernment that uh, kind of simply knows posture or knows activity or pauses to know and recognize mental states body state the discernment that that practice is getting to know getting to understand these hindrance factors 
the factors that obscure or that kind of block enjoyment or block clarity. Finding ways of, of kind of responding skillfully to them. And sensing how you know, the mindfulness that, that, is, that we're cultivating really needs these qualities of kind of balancing, protecting and caring. And there's, there's one other word that the Buddha uses in combination in the sutta with the, this mindfulness and clear knowing. And it's the word ardent. A-R-D-E-N-T. I spell it out because it's actually, you know, as well as English not being the first language of quite a number of people here, it's, it's a word we don't tend to use very much in English anyway. Where we do use it, we often talk about ardent love, don't we? A kind of it's an ardor burning with something, passion for something. It's actually quite a good translation of the Pali. And the Buddha really encourages us to be ardent about our practice. To, be, to, to cultivate a sense of wholehearted commitment as best we can. And it's worth taking time really to kind of reflect on that and to ask questions like, well, why do I think this is important, doing this? I know the voices of doubt can step in and say, I should have been doing something else this week instead, but actually you're here and a lot of you have given a lot of time in your lives to training in this and teaching it. Or, or, or our own pathways to do so. Why do, you th- why do we think it's important? Or why, at some level, do we know it's important? Kind of, even if I can't quite verbalise it. And it's worth taking time to really kind of reflect on that. What your own responses to that question are. I, I notice that I find myself going to the first, partly in response, go to the first verses of the, the Buddha's collection of sayings of the Buddha called the Dhammapada, where it says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a mind that's not seeing clearly, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the oxen. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. And, and just to sense the kind of profundity of that, you know, the, the profound shaping influence of our mental habits, our beliefs, our thoughts, our perceptions, our intentions, our ways of conceiving of things. And that the Dharma points to this kind of all-inclusive truth of that. It's a depth view. It's not that there's this psychological being living in an objective world. The Buddha is saying all our experience of everything is profoundly 
it's kind of radical degree to which it is made and shaped and fabricated and constructed, to use the Buddha's words, by ways of looking and the many conceptions and assumptions that are implicit unconsciously in our ways of looking. That things, you know, are so much less objective and solidly real than we tend to assume them to be. This is what the Buddha means by this perception as a mirage. As a mirage. This turns out to be key to the deeper insights and liberations that this, or the deepening, ever deepening insights and liberations that this path offers. Kind of deeply radical challenge to our habitual ways of looking and pointing to deeply radical possibilities of awakening and freedom. And this, you know, I find this motivating, you know, because it really gives a sense of how much our experience is created and malleable and shapeable by intentions, good or unskillful. And it also raises the question, you know, just to close, you know, for whose sake are we doing this? You know, just to reflect that this practice that, that creates experience, but also a sense of the kind of co-creation, the kind of infinitely rich co-creation, you know, our, our practice cannot help but affect others. <laughs> we know this, don't we? At, at some level, we see it in obvious ways. But all the research about, as one book puts it, the surprising power of social networks and how they shape our lives, you know, just how much we influence each other to radical degrees, ways that we're only just beginning to understand. And of course, you know, many people in this room are are parents or partners or therapists or mindfulness teachers or social workers. And we know so much that the depth of our understanding, the warmth of our hearts, the degree to which we're really embodying the teachings and practice, they have a profound influence on others. And there's something very beautiful about turning that insight into a motivation. Where we have this sense of, okay, may my practice this day, on this retreat, even on the second day of this retreat, may my practice be in some way of benefit, be in some way dedicated to the well-being of not just this life, not just the lives of those I love, those I know, but those I don't know. This world. See around the room people doing this gesture at the end of a sitting. and I, I really appreciate Joseph Goldstein's recommendation when we do this to have that sense of, okay, any benefit from this I offer to the well-being of, of all particularly those who are suffering most in this moment. It can be such a a beautiful way to connect our practice in the quietude and 
seclusion of retreat with the world that needs folk to be practicing awareness, wisdom and compassion so much you know so you know whatever this day has been for you just an invitation to, to make that kind of offering you know and, and have that sense of the, the importance and, and the gift of what you're doing and uh, thank you for doing it so let's just take a few moments thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate